0: You're listening to NetCare Pulse, keeping up to date on all things critical. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is NetCare Pulse. I'm Bruce Whitfield. I remember an interview with Dr. Richard Friedland probably a decade ago, and he announced the expansion into dedicated mental health facilities. And I remember thinking to myself, how very strange. Is that really a business opportunity? And we've seen the rising incidence of mental health issues. And I wonder, Sandy Lewis, who is the mental wellness and compassionate care lead for people development team at at NetCare, I wonder whether... There is a higher incidence of mental health issues emerging, or are we simply better at identifying, detecting, and fortunately treating these issues than perhaps we were when this initiative began a decade ago?
1: Bruce, I think that's not actually an either or. I think it's both. I think we are better at identifying mental health problems and... At the same time, I think people are less ashamed to come forward and actually admit that they're struggling so that they can, in fact, be diagnosed if they're ill. And I also think that particularly over the last few years and particularly in South Africa, we've seen an influx of enormous, an enormous number of intense stressors. And when there's a lot of environmental stress, we do know that the incidence of mental illness also goes up. So it's probably yes on all three of those.
0: People tended to treat mental wellness in the workplace as not a workplace problem. It's an environmental issue. You go home, you sort yourself out in your own time. Thank you very much. Make sure that you're fit and able to come to work tomorrow. And off you would go and simply have to cope. Uh, and suddenly we're beginning to see the workplace understanding that it is unfortunately deeply integrated into our personal lives. And if you can't show up at work and perform it at your very best, well, ultimately, it's the company that suffers.
1: Yes, that's true. But I also think that companies have an awareness that they also have a duty of care and that people are not there just to produce for them in order to make profits, and that actually people need to be cared for. And one of my very special interests is, in fact, introducing more compassion into the workplace, where, in fact, if a person is suffering, then the right thing to do is to approach that suffering with a willingness to help the person to alleviate the suffering and to recover in whatever way is possible
0: how do we go about destigmatizing mental health in the workplace
1: the best way really is to start talking about it so in the past it would all be very quietly hush hush and to the extent that often people would even lie about it and, and they're, you know they're off to spend three weeks in a clinic because they've had a depression that's rendered them dysfunctional. And people would say, well, they've gone on their annual leave. And in that way, we make it into a dirty secret that we can't talk about. And the person who's watching all of this, who's then the next one to suffer with depression, is going, I'm not going to talk about it. Um, I'm too scared and too ashamed. And so we, we, it all just goes underground. And that's really how stigma develops.
0: Is there not a risk here in the 21st century workplace that we go a little bit soft, Sandy, that we go well you know mental mental wellness is so terribly important so have a duvet day 3 days a month or whatever the case is if you're feeling a little unhappy or a little unwell take some time off um and you know we we go from one extreme of stigmatization and negligence to overcompensating and some people taking advantage perhaps of that environment because without proper diagnosis mental wellness is something that's very hard to pin down it's not like you know getting COVID and um, having a contagious disease and being forced out of the office it, it's, it's, a tougher, it's a tougher environment to to regulate.
1: So yes, I, I, I do hear the point you're making that in fact it, it can lead to unjustified absenteeism, but I think the point is that that would be um, in, in the exception, there are always going to be a few people who are outliers and who will take advantage but the majority of people will not and therefore we actually need to trust that people are not taking advantage and that when they don't come to work it is because they're genuinely ill and not because they they're just trying trying to see the gap and and in that way we actually make it okay then for the majority of people Who are not pretending um, to come forward and be honest about the problems they're having. And, you know, mental illness is serious. It's um, depression, for example, renders people more dysfunctional in their day-to-day living than any other physical illness does. So we're not going soft on people. I think what one needs to realize is there's tremendous suffering under the whole rubric of mental illness that people are very, very sick and they're not able to function and they really do need help and they really do need our compassion. How do
0: managers ensure then that that wellness issue is taken care of? How do you train people who in many cases are barely (laughs) surviving in their own jobs themselves to be far more cognizant of the needs of others?
1: One of the ways is to actually encourage people to connect with each other in the workplace and to talk to each other. And I, that's the other thing, you know, just like leaving your personal problems at the at, at the entrance um, when you arrived at work was the old fashioned way. The old fashioned way was also, well, we don't make friends at work. We're here, you know, to cooperate around whatever issue we, we need to be working on to produce some work related outcome and we don't become friends. And in fact that's shifted. And we're encouraging people to form relationships with with each other where they actually do talk about not only work things but family things and social things and personal things. So that if I've got to know a person, I can see if there's a sudden change in their mood, in their behavior, in 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 the way they're presenting themselves at work. And I could perhaps have enough trust in that relationship to even approach them about it. And then the other thing we can do is educate so that we can actually teach people what to look for in terms of identifying some of the symptoms of an incipient um, episode of mental unwellness.
0: So what is the difference then between a toxic work environment and one that is high performance, one that demands high standards, one that is uncompromising?
1: Uh, an environment can be high performance and high stress, and not all stress is bad stress. Some stress is important to to energise us to perform. And it's not necessarily true that all high performance, high stress environments are toxic, Not not at all. But some high-performance environments are toxic. And an environment is toxic when there is an abuse of power. So, in other words, when there are vast differences in power between people who are up the hierarchy towards the top and people who are lower down, where, in fact, It it results that the people who are at the top of the hierarchy, who have a lot of power, who have somehow diverted or privileged towards themselves also have completely disempowered and excluded other people from all forms of sharing in the privilege and the rewards. So in some instances, the end is always obviously, a high-performing, successful company. But not any means can justify that end. So in other words, if I'm actually abusing people in order to force them to perform in a way that's actually become exploitative and undermining and disrespectful and even attacking, then that becomes toxic. But
0: you appreciate, Sandy, that... (laughs) There is also a fine balance between what I might regard as a robust interaction. Somebody else will interpret as attacking and exploitative. Um, there, and, and how do we find a middle ground in this? How do we get the balance right? Because I think so many people in workplaces, particularly in a very high-stress environment, where, frankly, everybody's feeling the pressure of load-shitting. Everybody's feeling the pressure of strikes and, and political uncertainty and low economic growth and job security. Everyone's in that same boat together, sitting at different levels and different decks on the Titanic, but everyone's feeling that tension. And suddenly you have one or two people in an organization going, oh, this place is too hard. This place is too toxic. We need an intervention. And you think to yourself, oh, for goodness sake, just toughen up and let's get the job done here, people.
1: I think the, the line really that shouldn't be crossed is that, first of all, if we're going to get robust with each other, we stick to the issues. And we don't attack the person. So I quite like the saying that says, um, go for the ball and not the player. Um, And then the the other issue is that at the end of any interaction that we might have with each other, I do not feel that I've somehow been robbed of my dignity. That my inherent personality has, has not been attacked. So, yes, you can give me feedback on my behavior because I can change my behavior. But if you're going to go for aspects that I can't change, and that ultimately boils down to some sort of discrimination, um, then that's not okay. People, people still need to be accountable. And for companies to function and to be
0: high-functioning companies in, frankly, what can often be a fairly dysfunctional environment – If we're not cognizant of the mental health battles that people face and not appreciative of the fact that not everybody shares the privilege of the warm home, the private car to work, and being able to almost determine your own work hours and perhaps work from home two days a week, whatever the scenarios might be, not appreciating the circumstances of others in a deeply unequal society like the one in which we live is also deeply irresponsible and negligent and ultimately undermines our own place in the world, I suppose.
1: What you say is so correct. We don't know what people are struggling with. And in fact, more people than we realize are struggling on a lot of fronts in their lives. So the economy is tough. People are going home and are facing Financial problems that's causing strain in their relationship, and if you're at home and there's a lot of conflict, and you feel undermined, and you're feeling attacked, and there isn't a supportive space for you, and then you come to work and you're also experiencing that, and this goes on for a while. This doesn't just um, render you feeling unhappy. This can actually make you sick to the point where you you don't want to live anymore so it it can become really serious and that's why we do need to go carefully with people
0: and the data supports that doesn't it sandy i mean there are there's very strong data to suggest that people are really are struggling to cope
1: people really are struggling to cope and i'm going to tell you something ironic you know i suppose in a way you were describing a um, you know a high pressure high stress culture where cowboys don't cry and that's that's kind of a You know, a little bit macho, and you know that's 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 where the strong guys play out their best game. But you want to know who commits suicide the most? It's privileged men. It's privileged men. There's the
0: warning for you if you ever needed one. Thank you to Sandy Lewis. Sandy is a mental health professional. She runs the, the mental health aspects of Netcare's HR division. Sandy Lewis. That was NetCare Pulse,
1: keeping up to date on all things critical. Subscribe now.